Well, Josh and Brady are a couple funny guys at FX and with our sermon bumper videos, I guess, as well. God just wants me to be happy. Good morning to everyone here in the auditorium and everyone in the venue today. Great to be with you for worship. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. And uh, great to worship with you on this beautiful weekend. Amazing fall weather we've had, isn't it? My word. I could live here. (laughs) Glad that I do. Well, after nearly two years of endless campaigning, we're nine days from the presidential election. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Oh, man. Can't wait for this to be over. Uh, uh, You know, as I've been processing the coming election and um, thinking about it, even talking about it a lot with my kids especially, this has been a unique election in so many ways. And uh, it's a unique one for me and Susie in that uh, my older son, Elijah, is particularly interested in the election. And he's asked questions that... We've never had a kid ask us before, and uh, he's been exposed to cartoons in the newspaper and occasionally bits and pieces of the debate, and so he's engaging it in a way that we haven't experienced before. And uh, that, uh, number one, required me to get my game up to answer some of his questions, but number two, it just kind of reminded me that uh, one of the best things that we can do as parents and as grandparents is kind of help prepare our kids, uh, even politically, for the response to the election and these next nine days. And so I was just processing that over this past week, and if I can, in humility, before I start this morning's message, share a few ways that perhaps we could even train our kids in this next week and a half as we anticipate November 8th, ways we can talk to our kids about this coming election and uh, whoever is elected, how we can deal with that well with our kids, um, because I'm reminded that, you know, kids uh, live in the moment in a way that we as adults wish that we could. And uh, part of living in the moment as a kid means you have these uh, huge emotional ups and downs with respect to uh, different people that you hear are going to save you or are going to destroy you. And uh, kids can falsely believe that a certain candidate will um, be the death knell. And they can falsely believe that another candidate will be a savior. And I don't want my kids to believe that, and I'm sure you don't want your kids to believe that either. And so I'd like to just share, again, in all humility, a few ways that we could uh, perhaps consider talking with our kids as we move through this very intense election and toward uh, the day after the election and all of the emotions that will be experienced therein. Uh, On the backside of your insert this morning, you'll see these three points, and I'll just run through them quickly. Uh, I'd like to suggest that we calmly talk about the strengths and weaknesses of each candidate with our children. As age allows, you might ask your kids their opinions of Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton. How do they speak of others? How should we be speaking of others that we disagree with? They may not be able to dissect Syria. They may not be able to dissect healthcare expenses. But they could probably speak to some of the political issues uh, that relate to uh, social issues of the day, for example. They probably could um, talk with you about some of those. And how do we teach our kids to uh, disagree with those that we disagree with in a respectful manner? Or speak up for what we agree with in a respectful manner? 
Because I am firmly convinced that if our kids do not get that from mom and dad, they won't get it anywhere, will they? We need to teach our kids the way that we as Christians speak about those opinions, those policies, and those people with whom we might agree or disagree. Second, I think this is a powerful time to teach our kids about the two kingdoms that we live in and the responsibilities that we have to each. We live in two different kingdoms, right? We live in the kingdom of God in which Christ lives and reigns forevermore and in which uh, we see uh, the will of God by being done in the kingdom of God and God would invite us to pray for the kingdom of God to advance. That's even part of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we might teach our kids, what does it look like to be a responsible member of the kingdom of God? And take your kid to Matthew 13, for example, and look at parables there. Uh, and then you might teach your kid, what does it look like to be a responsible member of the kingdom of this world? The kingdom of America. Each country has its own kingdom, so to speak. And how do we live our civic duty in a way that would honor God? And obviously that would include voting. I would strongly encourage, I would uh, even say that if, if we're given the opportunity, the privilege of voting, we must vote. But in addition to that, I would say that to live as responsible members of this kingdom uh, includes uh, thinking about issues from a biblical standpoint and looking up passages that might relate to particular issues. So to cite a couple quick examples, if you are pro-life, you might look at Psalm 139, or if you care about uh, the disabled, you might look at Matthew 25, you might help your kids look through these kinds of passages and begin to apply these passages to what we believe about our role in this kingdom called America. And those parents who want to raise savvy Christian children help connect the Bible to contemporary issues. This is an opportunity for us to do just that, always with kindness and respect. You could even go further and encourage your kids to do some kind of research project as it relates to some particular issue from the Bible and also with application to our world. Maybe there's a certain way they could help support a pregnancy center or a foster care center or help the poor out in some way. Give tangible expressions and then communicate how we are living in this world, in this kingdom, and simultaneously living in the kingdom of God, which will never fail. Third, I think it's vital that we teach our kids to trust God and to pray for whoever is elected. God will not be surprised by whoever is elected on November 9th when we wake up that morning. I do not believe God will be alarmed. We might be alarmed. Uh, I do not believe God will be worried. God will remain on his throne. He will still be on his throne no matter who is elected on November 8th such that on November 9th, we can speak charitably about anyone who is elected. Whatever ballot measure might pass, we can speak charitably, we can disagree agreeably, and we know that God remains in charge. And we understand that as Christians that to speak dishonorably about any person is to dishonor our Lord. 
and to dishonor people who are made in the image of God. And so again, we train ourselves and we train our children to speak in a certain way and then even to pray that God would guide the hand of whoever is leading our nation, whoever is leading our state, whoever is leading in all different capacities, that he would grant wisdom to those who are in power. Bible teacher and author Jen Wilkin explains, rather than depict a presidential election as an epic battle between good and evil, we can teach our children that whoever ascends to the White House, a good and trustworthy God sits enthroned between the cherubim. The president is human after all. There is great comfort in this thought for a child. And I might add some pretty good comfort for mom and dad as well to know that God sits enthroned nonetheless. So with that, let's, uh, let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for this upcoming election. And uh, let's agree to be difference makers who speak about these things in a different way than those who belong only to this world. Father in heaven, how grateful we are to live in this great land. We are so thankful for our country. And we ask in the words of our Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, may your will be done here on this earth, here in our nation, here in our city, here in our state. May your will be done here as it is always done in heaven. I pray, God, that we would be amongst those who are pursuing the kingdom of God, seeking your will, even as we live within this world. We're very grateful, again, to be here now, and we pray for a safe and secure election. We pray that it be fair and just. We ask, Lord, for whoever is elected, that you would grant that person wisdom to follow your will. Father, we thank you that whoever is elected, you ultimately reign. This is a great time for us to remember that you reign, that no person is ultimately in charge, but we seek to follow you. May we uh, be people who lead the way in this, Lord. Help us to speak charitably, to understand one another, to listen to one another, and uh, help us to be the kinds of Christians who lead the way. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our great nation, and we pray for your peace and protection over our country in the next week and a half. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, speaking of parenting, let me begin this morning with uh, this little parenting question. What did your parents most want for you as they were raising you? Long term, what did they most hope for you? What were their dreams for you? My guess is, if you were raised by people in the World War II generation, what they most wanted for you was good character, that you would be people of integrity. There's a radio personality who's done an informal poll of hundreds of callers over the past several years, and he's asked parents, uh, what is it that you most want for your kids? And he's also asked, what is it that your parents most want for you? And what he's found over the past several years is that while previous generations in World War II and previously in America wanted goodness for their kids, the character trait of goodness, out of four options, uh, the character trait of goodness, wealth, success, or happiness, 85% of today's parents chose, could you guess? Happiness. 
85% of today's parents across America chose happiness. We Americans are obsessed with happiness. We long to personally experience great pleasure. We long that our kids would experience great pleasure and great happiness. And we tend to be terribly confused about what happiness really is. Uh, Webster's Collegiate Definition, De Dictionary defines happiness this way. It is a sense of pleasurable satisfaction. Pleasurable satisfaction. I would go so far as to add to this, not being bored. In our culture today, we just want to not be bored. We really want to be entertained. We want this constant sense of fun, of pleasure, of immediate gratification, of feeling happy. And if you listen to the advertisers of today who really know what they're doing and really know their audience, they know that happiness is for sale. Let me give you just a few examples. Yeah, you'll see up on the screen a couple of the biggest companies. One is Coca-Cola, who used as its slogan for a number of years until June of 2016, open happiness. That's all it takes. Just a bottle of Coke and you got happiness, baby. Now, in anticipation of this message, they actually changed their slogan <laughs> to taste the feeling, okay? Still, along those same lines, do you hear it? Open happiness or pop it open and you taste the feeling. Or how about McDonald's? They have their famous happy meal. I mean, it's all the happiness a mom and dad could possibly buy for only $2.99. Unless, of course... Johnny gets the wrong toy. <laughs> then there ain't no more happiness. Think about our musical anthems. When I was growing up, one of the most popular songs, which I did not like, I must, I must add, was Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Remember that? I came home in the morning light. My mother says, when are you going to live your life right? Oh, mother dear, we're not the fortunate ones, and girls, they want to have fun. Oh, girls, ladies, just want to have fun. That's all girls want. We just want, we don't want to live our life right. It's not about character. It's not about integrity. It's not about goodness. We just want to have fun. One of the most popular anthems today, one of the most popular songs of the past several years is Pharrell's Happiness, or Happy, Pharrell's Happy. It's got a great beat to it. I, I love how this song sounds. Listen to this clip from this song, and we'll dissect it for just a moment. clap? Should we get into it together? It's a good song. I mean, it's got a great beat. But look at that line up there that I have underlined. Clap along if you know that happiness is the truth. So a, a feeling of pleasure equals truth. This is the very definition of postmodernism that uh, truth is not an objective thing, it is a feeling of pleasure, a feeling of getting what I want when I want it, of immediate gratification. 
And sadly, it's deeply infected the church that today, some of the most popular Christian books include titles like this, Your Best Life Now. You're supposed to be wealthy. Did you know? And how about this one? Every day, this is my favorite one, every day a Friday. Oh, yeah. None of the work between Monday and Friday. No perseverance every day. A Friday. Yes, please. I mean, these are from Christian pastors. One of the greatest, uh, one of the largest megachurches in the world has a couple pastors, and one of the preachers there has said, and I quote, just do good for your own self. Do good for you. Because God wants you to be happy. When you worship Him, you're not doing it for Him. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. When you're happy, then God is happy. What God mostly wants for you is your happiness. So what? What's the big deal? You seem kind of sour today, Adrian. I mean, what are you, a a killjoy up here? I mean, we all want happiness. Nothing wrong with wanting happiness. We'd all like some pleasure. We'd all like some fun. I'd like a life with some fun as opposed to a life without any fun, as I'm sure you would. But here's the problem. It makes life into a roller coaster. And it turns life into needing one high after another high. And that goal is way too small for what God has intended for us. When you search for, for happiness as the goal of your life, you're just, you just end up searching for one pleasurable experience after another. And so when strong drink is not strong enough, you get something stronger. When the most extreme sport isn't extreme enough, you add another more extreme sport to your bucket list. When worship service doesn't give me the right feeling that I really want for myself, then you find another church. Or you find another religion at times. When monogamy is not fun anymore, well then you fill in the blank. And people are living this way Again, it turns life into a roller coaster in which there's this constant sense of consumerism and an eventual sense that my life as a whole, be it my marriage or my parenting, my work life, my church, even God, exists for my own good pleasure, which frankly turns into a bunch of narcissistic, selfish people. And we have it, unfortunately, all over the place in the United States now. It leads to a dissatisfaction with marriage and parenting and finances. It leads to legions of Hollywood personalities who are addicted and flaming out. And it leads to legions of young people and old people alike, I might add, that are crippled by comparison and anxiety that I am not getting mine, I need more. And this has turned into a, a, a cultural tsunami in the past 15, 20 years in our nation that is just fueling anxiety for legions and legions of people. You remember that passage in the Sermon on the Mount well, when Jesus says, uh, don't worry about what you eat 
Because God provides for the birds of the air. Don't worry about what you're dressed like. Don't worry about all the fashions and wearing all the most beautiful stuff because he provides far more gloriously for the lilies of the field. Remember that one? Okay, don't worry about all these things. Trust in me. Seek first my righteousness, my kingdom, and I'll take care of that stuff. We're going to listen to that verse in a contemporary language, Matthew 6, 25 through 33, from the message. The message is a paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. And take a listen to this as it's read by our own Grace Watson. You'll see the words on the screen, but here's Jesus in contemporary language speaking to this issue. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God, and you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion. Do you really think it makes much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The ten best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting, so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way He works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how He works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. It's a beautiful antidote to today's culture. Today's culture says we must constantly consume. And there's a void going on in here. And the only way that void will be filled is if I consume something more, get a little more, look out more for number one, get more pleasure. You, you see, the, the myth is that we get from our culture, and again, it's now affected the church, that God wants me to be happy. The truth is that God wants me to pursue goodness. The truth is that God wants you and me to pursue 
the character of integrity, the character of upright living, to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness. Happiness is a fine short-term goal, and it's fine to occasionally get pleasure of a wonderful meal and a nice new toy. There's nothing wrong with that, but if you spend your life, if I spend my life I I reflect on this often. If I spend my life fussing over the next thing that I want because I think it's going to fill something in here, I'm constantly fussing over that and feeling anxious about the next thing because the thing that I just bought satisfies me for about three seconds. It's, It's always needing more. The Bible would teach us that our desires are not too great but too small. The goal instead, quoting Nalfa from the ESV, is to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness and all other things will be given to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first what He wants done in the world and His goodness. Righteousness here is just a synonym to goodness. His goodness. Seek first for that. Go after what He wants done. Go after the character that is revealed in Jesus Christ and then all the other little things will fall into focus. But if you reverse this, you'll get neither goodness nor long-term happiness, only short-term pleasure and then anxiety. Think about it. Americans today are actually uh, twice as wealthy as uh, Americans were 50 years ago. We're, We're far healthier than Americans were 50 years ago. We're living longer. We're more youthful. We've had a little blip in the past decade in terms of our wealth, but compared to where we were 50 years ago, it's not even close. And yet at the same time, you read all of these studies, study after study shows that we're experiencing more depression than we ever have, experiencing more anxiety, more anxiety disorders today than we ever have. And there's no shame in having some anxiety. There's no shame in in being depressed. I've said this before up here, I will never shame anyone for going through depression. It's a serious and intense deal, and I'll never shame shame anyone for that. But part of the reason for our intense anxiety, part of the reason for some of our depression is we've bought into the cultural lie that getting equals happiness, and happiness is pleasure. Totally false. It's the wrong goal. The myth, again, is I just need to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. The truth is that what God wants for us is goodness. What God wants for us is that we would lean into the Holy Spirit daily. We would pursue the Holy Spirit each and every day. We would live our lives in submission to Christ each and every day. And as a result, from these little limbs would grow the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy. And joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is totally based on circumstances. Joy is a settled disposition, a settled tone of being stable in Christ, that I can make it through whatever because I have Christ no matter the circumstances. And the fruit of the Spirit, the the fruit of pursuing Christ is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And those are the blessings that come only to those who strive for the kingdom of God, living under the Spirit of God, seeking His goodness. Let me give you an example. Last week I was talking with a gentleman here in this church who works and has worked for quite some time at the YRTC, the Youth Rehab and Treatment Center here in town. And he's got a tough job. He's a youth counselor. 
And I was asking him about his job, and um, we were talking about some of the things that he doesn't like about his job, all the paperwork, and he sometimes doesn't like all the group therapy, but because group think takes over well with these teenage kids. But then he just started to volunteer the things that he loves about his job. And he was talking about working one-on-one well with kids, and the joy when they start to get out of their shell and share what's going on in their hearts. And they start to open up with him one-on-one. And he was talking about it, and I couldn't get him to stop talking about it. I need to get back in here and preach. Couldn't get him to stop talking about it. His face just radiated as he talked about these kids. And he said, you'd be hard-pressed to find another place to make a bigger difference. And I'm just like, wow, this is a tough place to work, so I've heard. He's working with kids that have been involved with, with gangs. And working with kids that have been terribly abused by their parents and sometimes abandoned by their parents. I mean, these are the kinds of kids that many of us would not want to work with. How is he having such joy on his face? Well, what it is, is the experience of joy that comes out of pursuing a great purpose far bigger than yourself and knowing that you're doing with your life what God would want you to do. There's a certain joy that radiated out of him, but because he knew he was pursuing something that he would say in his heart of hearts, this is good. This would please my Lord with the gifts that he has given me. And I can't contain myself as I talk about it. You see, there are certain gifts that come to those who pursue goodness. When we live a life of integrity and honesty and sacrifice and generosity and, pur- and purpose, the great virtues, there are certain goods like he experienced, that good of joy, the goodness of peace. We get those in a way that people who are only going after happiness never find. Right? We all see this. The people who are only going after happiness do not gain the satisfaction of purpose and the stabilizing joy that people who go after goodness do in fact find. Again, I love how C.S. Lewis put it here. He says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting First things first. If you are looking for pleasure as a first value, you'll get only soft soap and wishful thinking. As such, I think we want to teach ourselves and we really want to teach our kids not to ask the question, what makes you happy? Go do that. But instead ask the question, what is the right thing to do? What what does goodness look like? What would a really good person do in this difficult situation? In this question, in this dilemma that you are uh, toggling through, what would a really good person do? What would an upright character look like? That eventually will also include happiness, but if you don't ask that question first, you'll get neither goodness nor true happiness. The second myth is this. If I run after pleasure... I will find happiness. The truth is, if we run with Christ, if we run after Christ and then we run with Christ, it's there that we will find true joy. Can you think of someone in the Bible who ran after pleasure? The prodigal son comes to mind. Okay, the prodigal son says to his father, you're as good as dead to me. Can I please have my inheritance and have it now? 
And then the Father's this gentleman who represents our true Father in heaven who gives us what we want. He is a gentleman who gives us what we want, even if sometimes that will mean all kinds of great consequences for us. Do you believe that? He'll, he'll give us what we want. And, and the father gives this prodigal son, well, what's he want, what he wants, and then he goes off and he, he squanders it all, as the scriptures say. And, and he's, he's living wildly with prostitutes until he gets bored with all women. And he's living wildly, well, with all these great parties until uh, he gets bored with all of that, with all the alcohol and all of the drugs and all of the partying. He's bored with all of that. And then one day he finds himself broke. He's emotionally broke, he's spiritually broke, and he's financially broke, and he's eating the same food that is being fed to the pigs. And he comes to his senses in that moment, and he says to himself, well, maybe I can go back to my father, and at least there I could be a higher servant eating a whole lot better than the pigs right now. At the very least, maybe I could be a hired hand in his household. And so he repents. That's what it means when it says he turned back to the father. He repents, he goes back to the father, and before he can even get to the father and get up his speech, his father is looking through the, the window of his house, looking for his son. And while the son is a long way off, you imagine this Middle Eastern father bringing up the robe. So he exposes his naked legs and he runs through town. He picks up a booking through town till he finds his son. And he puts his arms around his son and he blesses him and he kisses him and he throws a big party for his son. You were lost, bud, but now you're found. I love you. I forgive you. Come and share and your father's happiness, you are forgiven. And so it is for us. The father would do for us as we turn to him. But to make happiness the goal is to get lost. Here's the point. To make happiness the goal is to find yourself in the pigsty like the prodigal son. And many of us have been there. And I have been there. There are no stones from the stage. I have been there. I lived for my own pleasure for quite some time, and I was lost. What it led me to was the fleeting feeling of happiness and many pleasures and life as a roller coaster, which never actually satisfied, but actually was enslaving. Many of you have experienced the same thing. Instead, when we run with Christ, when we run after Christ, what he does for us is he produces a settled tone of joy, a stability and a hope amidst turmoil, and ultimately, he liberates us from constantly needing what I want when I want it. Life with Christ every day, I mean, can you believe how glorious it is? It's just so liberating to be with Christ every day. To know that he is with us and we are his and we belong to him and we get to live in a different kind of kingdom than the rest of this world lives in. That is so incredibly liberating for us to begin to see the fruit of the Spirit growing out of these limbs. That's why that, yeah, amen is right. I'm glad someone agrees with me. You all need to say amen too. <laughs> They're all saying amen in the venue. I heard them through those doors. All right, verse 24 of Matthew 16. This is one of the common statements, though, that Jesus says to, to the disciples. He says this repeatedly to the disciples. He, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. And he says it in so many different ways throughout the Gospels. Listen to these three verses from Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will actually lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? You know, Jesus here isn't actually talking about heaven and hell. I mean, that's of vital importance, how we respond to God and where we end up. But what he's actually talking about is losing your soul, losing your very life here on earth. And we all know people who have done just this. They've sought to save their life. They've lived their life for their own desires, out of their belly, for only their own wants. Live for greed, live for lust, live for status, live only for power. And in the process, though they've had it all, though they've gained the whole world, as that passage says, You've witnessed it, I've witnessed it, they've lost their souls. They got no real life. But fortunately, Jesus gives us the antidote to all that. He says, pick up your cross, endure some suffering with me, sacrifice for my purposes. Do not seek to save your life, but lose your life for my sake. And then actually, though it is so very paradoxical, then actually we find true, real, abundant life. Picking up our cross, following Him, losing some of what we want for what is ultimately virtuous. Now, how do we do this? I think we do have to ask the question, how? Because this is kind of philosophical and a little bit vague. How do we grow in goodness? Allow me to suggest just three small next steps, and I'll close with these quickly. N- number one, you, you might begin growing in, good, in goodness by having a conversation this week about when you knew that you were pursuing goodness. When you know in your life right now that you're doing things, that you're engaging in activities, that you're living with Christ in such a way that you are pursuing goodness. Talk with a friend or a spouse or a parent who is safe and talk about those times that you say, I'm doing something that if I looked at my life right now as a secretary or a mother or a father, as a builder or a businessman, I'm doing things the way Jesus would have me do it. And, and, And there's goodness there. There's joy there. I feel this myself when I put away all the devices, when I put away work, and I get down on the floor on the carpet with my kids, and I look in their eyes, playing games with them, doing puzzles with them, coloring with them. There's just something in my heart of hearts that I know that is good. God would be pleased with that. Have that conversation with a friend. Number two, limit your intake of media and television. I'm telling you, your worldview is formed by what you take in. What you believe about the world. Our minds are formed by what we take in. And I am not the kind of pastor, I promise you, I'm not the kind of pastor they will stand up and rail against TVs and movie and internet. I am not that kind of pastor. I enjoy movies from time to time. I enjoy a good football game. I enjoyed that Nebraska game until the very end last night. I root for them. I enjoy those games. Yes, all of that. Fast forward through the commercials. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But limit that intake because people today are being formed in their minds and in their hearts by Hollywood's definition of happiness. And Hollywood's definition of happiness is more lust 
more greed, more power, more of me, myself, and I. We are going to be formed by something. So we're wise to put limits on it for our kids' benefit and for our own. And then third, just do what we continue to do here in this series. Bathe yourselves in the Gospels. Bathe yourselves in the God that Jesus revealed. As, as we constantly have our narratives, have our worldviews formed by Jesus and the Scriptures, by listening to the Scriptures, that's something that I've been doing recently. It's been so incredibly refreshing to take out the Bible version app on the phone and then mow the lawn while I'm listening to the Gospel of John, for example. I mean, listening to the scriptures can be so very powerful. It's, there's been a refreshment in it for me. Memorizing some of the scriptures. Oh, there's a power when you get the word of God in you. That changes your worldview, changes the way we think. Uh, steeping ourselves in the gospels of Christ. There's a wonderful movie out just titled The Gospel of John, and there's one life group that's using that for their life group. They're going through it chapter by chapter. It just retells the whole of the gospel of John in movie format. Asking God, how would you, Lord Jesus, serve as a mother in this situation? How would you, Lord Jesus, serve as a father or as a church member in this situation? Asking him and waiting on an answer. But again, the goal is to do what we've been doing in this series, bathing ourselves in the person, the kindness, the good character of Christ, getting first things first, and then second things fall into their proper place. Bathe ourselves in the radiant joy of the one who alone is Christ, and we are changed. Our minds are formed, and we get something far better than happiness. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray together. A begrudging amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, you are a good God, and we love you. We love you, God, that you want something more for us. We love the fact that you want more for us than this world has to offer. And, and we all do want happiness, and there's nothing wrong with that, God. We all do. I do. Nothing wrong with that. But we thank you, Lord, that that can't be a primary goal. You want something more. And so I pray for all my friends in this room that we would collectively pursue the kingdom of God and your goodness, Lord Jesus, your righteousness, Lord Jesus. Would you help us to think creatively about ways that we could pursue virtue and integrity and holiness even this week, how we maybe could take this application and talk to a friend about it this week and how we could uh, factor in a little bit more time to be with you and be formed by you. Lord, we love you, and, and again, we're just so very grateful that you want for us the fruit of the Spirit. We say together that would be a great life to exhibit love and joy and peace and all the rest. So may it be true for us and for our families. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Would you receive our worship now in the mighty name of Christ.